All right, let's get started. And uh, that little R next to uh, Ray actually indicates that I've logged in under his name and we're recording this. Um, so welcome to Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews, Session 2. My name is Doug Taylor, and it's a real privilege for me to uh, share this information with you. One of the things that we've discovered uh, over the years, and I think has been known for a long time, is that when you're dealing with learning, when students review material shortly after they learn it, retention goes way up. So what I would like to do is just take a few minutes before we get started on new material and review some of the ideas we covered last time. What we're trying to do in this class is lay a foundation. And the ideas that we covered last week and some of the ones we talk about this week are very foundational. It's sort of like learning basic blocks and kicks uh, in a martial art. You can never really get too much uh, of the basics. So the very first thing uh, that we did uh, last time, let me make sure I get my cursor in the right place to advance slides for you, is we talked about the question, how do we know what's true? And we came up with three sources. Uh, the first was direct observation or experience. I saw something, I heard it, I tasted it, I touched it, I smelled it. We get a lot of our experience through those five senses and also have to keep in mind that our senses can be fooled. Uh, as is done with Hollywood movies and stage magicians all the time. We also discussed in some depth how we can know something is true by reasoning. Uh, a couple of different ways to do that. One is a logical deduction or proof. Uh, and one would be a preponderance of evidence. If we see so much evidence around something, then for all practical purposes, uh, we can assume it's true. And the third way would be prophecy from a known prophet. Uh, but as we discussed, figuring out exactly who is a known prophet, how we would test one and know for sure that they're someone we should rely on is a whole different subject outside the scope of what we want to cover in this class. We then discussed a, uh, a presentation, uh, or rather a demonstration, for the existence of the Creator uh, by looking at our reactions to the claim that someone threw a bottle of ink against the wall and it produced a perfect copy of the Declaration of Independence. And we also looked at the claim that in a conference room, the wind blew meeting materials from a closet onto a table. Uh, and from that, we derived the principle that when we see order, we assume there is intelligence behind it. And then we began to look around at all the different um, uh, things that we have uh, in, our, in our world from the complexity of our bodies to the systems we see in nature, in the oceans, in the atmosphere, in space, uh, the laws of physics, all those different kinds of things. We see this beautiful order in the world around us and in us, and it's pretty safe for us to conclude there has to be some kind of intelligence behind that. We then proceeded to give a proof of the existence of the Creator. Uh, and we did that by looking at three different statements, which we went into some uh, detail to prove. The first is that a thing doesn't make itself. Uh, two, that causes are limited in number, so they don't go back forever. But they must have a first cause before which there is no other cause. And then we also proved that anything that is composite, that is, that is made up of parts, had to be brought into existence. And from those three statements, one 
can then derive, and we did so, uh, as to uh, the existence of a creator. So before I go on, are there any questions from this or the material that we covered last week? Okay, I'll, I'll take silence as a no, uh, and uh, feel free to type something in if you wish, or uh, go ahead and click on the microphone if you have a comment that you'd uh, like to make. So let's move on. Given that we know, and now we've established as a foundation for ourselves, that there is a creator of the universe, then our next question could be, has that creator communicated with us? Or more specifically, can we know that the Torah was given by God? Because after all, uh, all the big religions of the world claim that their so-called revelation is true. Uh, theirs is the one. All the rest of them, you know, are supposedly false. So how do we know that the Torah and Judaism is the real thing? Uh, and by the way, by the Torah, I'm referring to the first five books of what is commonly called the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the written Torah. And the rest of the books are part of uh, the rest of the books that are part of the Hebrew Bible. We'll talk about more uh, a little later in uh, today's class. And Marie, let me release the microphone and welcome to have you uh, share some ideas. Great. Thanks so much, Marie. Okay. Uh, so let's talk first about evidence. So we're into this question of can we prove the Torah was given by the Creator? Suppose someone came up to you and said that they just got abducted by aliens into an invisible spaceship, and that on board the spaceship was Elvis Presley and Bruce Lee, and that the person who's telling you this story had a great lunch with Elvis and Bruce, and that included gourmet stuffed croissants, and that then the aliens dropped this person off at a nearby street corner, and you're the first person they've talked to about this. Now, would you believe them? And we talked a little bit about this last week, and I want to revisit this idea because it's very, very important. My guess generally is that we probably would not, or at least we would be very skeptical initially. But if we consider a major world event, like the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, uh, or a number of historical events, we would probably accept that those occurred. Now, we weren't around when those events occurred. We didn't see them or witness them. Yet we accept that they actually happened. And the reason for that is the preponderance of evidence principle. It may be possible to get one or two people to lie about something, or even to convince them that something happened when it actually didn't. 
But it's clearly not possible to do that with a large number of people. That's why conspiracies break down as the group that is in the know gets larger, because somebody's bound to spill the beans on the whole thing. And it's also important that whatever event these people witness is simple enough for everyone to grasp. So, I mean, a civil war battle isn't rocket science. It's pretty easy for those people watching to see what's happening and realize, you know, people died there, and for relatives afterwards to realize that their sons or, uh, you know, cousins or whatever died. So if you look at the world's religions, you generally find that they all started from one or a very few number of people who supposedly got some kind of revelation from God. Christianity and Islam, for example, are both like this. But Judaism, interestingly, has the audacity to claim that the entire nation heard God speak. They all heard God's voice. Now, that's a pretty big claim. So let's take a look at it. We know that the Torah states that the entire nation of Israel heard God's voice at Mount Sinai. That's in the Torah. You've read it before. We also know that there were approximately 600,000 men there at that uh, supposed event. Now, that's 600,000 men. If you add in the women and the children, the total population likely exceeds about 2 million. So you've got a situation in round numbers where the Torah is claiming that about 2 million people heard God's voice at Sinai. So let's take a look at that claim. And to do that, let's shift to a little bit of logic. So I'm going to suggest to you that one of only two possibilities exists. And by the way, this is a proof that I received from uh, one of my mentors, Rabbi Israel Chait of uh, Far Rockaway, New York. I'd suggest that only one of two possibilities exist. Either those people heard the Creator's voice or they didn't. It's got to be one of those. It's one or the other. And, and by the laws of logic, if we can show that one is true, the other must be false. And the reverse of that is true. If we can show that one is impossible, then the other must be true. So we've got an A and B kind of situation here, uh, to put it in classical logic. So let's look, let's take the, the possibilities in order. Suppose the people did hear God's voice at Mount Sinai. Well, if that's true, then we're done. <laughs> that's the easy part. So now let's look at the second possibility. Let's suppose that the people didn't hear God's voice at Mount Sinai. Now, if we could prove that that is impossible, that is, it's impossible that they didn't hear it, then we will have proven the first, because it's got to be the first or the second sub-bullet there. Now, if we heard, if the people did not hear God's voice at Mount Sinai, then... I would suggest that that story had to be falsely introduced into the Torah and into history at some point by someone. After all, I mean, it's there now, so somebody had to put it there. So I'll suggest that there are only two possibilities for when that story could have been falsely introduced. And that would have been... at the time of the supposed event, or sometime later. So whoever introduced this thing falsely had to do it at that time, or they had to do it at a later point in time. Because we know the story exists now, 
So I would submit those are the only possibilities. Now, if we can show that both of those are impossible, then we will have shown that it's impossible for the story to have been falsely introduced, and thus it would be impossible that the people did not hear God's voice at Mount Sinai. So let's take the first possibility. Let's suppose that the story was falsely introduced at the time the event was supposed to have taken place. So what we're doing is we're theorizing here that some person, and maybe it was Moses, maybe it was somebody else, started telling people that two million of them heard God's voice. Now, do you suppose that that's really possible? I mean, who would believe it if it hadn't happened? Yeah, it might be possible to fool one or two people, but could you tell two million people that some huge event happened to them when in fact it didn't? And I'll suggest to you that that's impossible. I mean, the people would look at the person telling them this as if he had two heads. What? What do you mean we heard God's voice? We never heard any such thing. I mean, this would be like trying to tell the population of a city like Seattle that they all witnessed a spaceship landing on City Hall and Elvis Presley walked out and sang Kentucky Rain. I mean, if the person doing it was really persuasive, he or she might convince one or two people that they saw such a thing, but convincing two million people? Impossible. So our second possibility is that the person introduced this story at a later point in history. In other words, at some time after it was supposed to have happened, the person said something like, well, some number of years ago, your ancestors heard God's voice. And in fact, two million people at that time heard God's voice. Well, that might seem plausible, but hang on just a second. The people hearing this would respond something like this. They'd say, hey, wait a second. If such a big event had happened, our ancestors would have told us about it. Our grandparents would have told us about it. Someone would have written it down. But now you're saying this thing happened, yet we've never heard anything about it until now? No way. Not possible. Not possible. The people would question the lack of history. I mean, that would be like coming along and saying uh, now that the, a, a war like uh, the Vietnam War happened, except that nobody's ever heard anything about it up till now. It just it wouldn't be accepted. So in other words, given the size of the audience that was supposed to have heard God's voice, it would be impossible for someone to falsely introduce this story later in history because the people at that time would challenge it on the basis that they'd never heard about it before. Now, this is a key difference between Judaism and every other uh, religion that exists. Um, other religions stem from a, you should call it a supposed revelation that was supposedly given to one person or a small handful of people. And conspiracies can exist when you have a very small number of people involved, but it's impossible to get two people, two million people to agree to lie about something. And only Judaism can point to a situation where God spoke to the entire nation. No other religion on the planet that I'm aware of can claim that. So we've shown that it's impossible for the story to have been falsely introduced at the time the event was supposed to have taken place. And we've shown that it's impossible to have falsely introduced the story at a later point in history. 
And since those are the only two possibilities, and we've shown them both to be impossible, we've shown that it's impossible for the story to have been falsely introduced. Thus, the only other possibility left open to us from our original possibilities is that the story is true and that God did speak to the entire nation. Okay. Any questions on that before we move on? Okay. So let's move on to a slightly different subject. And let me make sure that I'm up to date here on my slides. When we talk about the Torah, it's important to know that there is a written Torah and there is an oral Torah. And here's how this came about. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, God gave him the Torah, and Moses wrote down the written Torah. But at the same time, God also gave him the oral Torah, oral as in by, by mouth. And that part wasn't written down. It was taught orally by word of mouth to Moses, and then he turned around and taught it to others, who taught it to others, and it's been brought down through uh, Jewish scholarship over many, many years. Now, you'd be quite appropriate to challenge that and say, well, how do we know that? And I'm going to suggest there are a number of ways from within the Torah itself, and let's take a look at some of those. Consider uh, these verses. Exodus 13.9 says, These words must also be a sign on your arm and a reminder in the center of your head. And Deuteronomy 6.8 says, bind these words as a sign on your hand and let them be an emblem in the center of your head. And Deuteronomy 11.18 says, place these words of mine on your heart and soul, bind them as a sign on your arm and let them be an insignia in the center of your head. So clearly we have a direct command going on here by God to the Jewish people. The question is, how is it supposed to be fulfilled? Are the words supposed to be literally written on the center of their heads or their arms? How, how, do they, how do they keep this commandment? How can the Jewish people know what they're supposed to do here? Now, it should be obvious that God wouldn't require the people to do something and then not tell them how to do it. Yet, if we go all the way through the written Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we don't find an explanation as to how this commandment is to be fulfilled. Let's take another example. We go to Deuteronomy 12.21. It says, You need only slaughter your cattle and small animals that God will have given you in the manner that I have prescribed. Okay? Now, we don't find the manner that I have prescribed anywhere in the written Torah. I mean, this refers to the whole area of ritual slaughter. So how are the Jewish people supposed to know how to do this if there's no explanation given? Thus, there has to be another information source. And that information source is the oral Torah. The, the written Torah is those five books, and the oral Torah is passed down orally through the scholars. So Moses went up to Mount Sinai, gets the written Torah, he also gets the oral Torah. He comes down from the mountain, he taught the oral law to Joshua, and then Joshua taught it to the elders. And then the elders would turn around uh, and work with it from there. 
there has been a very careful record kept of the passing of the oral law from generation to generation through the Jewish scholars. Uh, oral law was always taught orally, and it includes the answers to the questions we just raised, plus lots of others. This transmission of the oral Torah continued for many generations until the days of a man named Rabbi Judah the Prince. And during that time, he perceived, and I'll quote out of a book called Gateway to the Talmud here, that the level of scholarship was waning, that hardships were approaching, that the power of the Roman government was expanding, and that the Jewish people were dispersed far and wide. In other words, they were in a time when there was a danger, because of the Roman Empire and everything going on, that um, the oral Torah might be lost, because if enough scholars were uh, killed or executed, then you wouldn't have the tradition of carrying that down from scholar to scholar. So he began to put the oral Torah into writing. And he did that in order, essentially, to save the system. And then uh, discussions of scholars were added, and discussions of discussions were added, and the result that we have today, which includes all of this material, is called the Talmud. Uh, the Talmud is a many-volume work uh, that explains a lot of things that uh, where questions are open in the written Torah and also gives a lot of information uh, on exactly how laws are supposed to be followed. It is virtually impossible to understand the written Torah without the oral Torah, and that's why the teachings of the rabbis are so important. Rabbis who have studied the Oral Torah and are scholars in it can really open up the true meaning of the written Torah through the ideas contained in the Talmud. As you probably experienced, there are people who will read a verse or a chapter from the written Torah and then immediately think they understand it. But it's quite possible they are missing huge amounts of understanding and maybe even going down a wrong path if they don't have the benefit of a rabbinic scholar to explain from the Oral Torah the real meaning of a particular chapter or verse. The Talmud itself is virtually impossible to learn without a teacher. Uh, although English translations now exist, a person really needs a qualified teacher in order to understand what's being said in the Talmud and why. The sages were, were sometimes very brief and very cryptic with their words, and it takes some digging and unraveling to understand exactly what they're saying. And sometimes, what happens now is people who get a hold of uh, the written Torah, the oral Torah that's been written down in the Talmud will look in it and see something written and, and say, gee, the Talmud says this thing, which sounds fairly outrageous, and uh, draw some very incorrect conclusions because they don't understand the context, they don't understand the methodology, and they don't understand that the scholars weren't necessarily saying what they think they were saying. Part of the reason, as I understand it, uh, that the sages didn't like to write books was for this very reason. Um, when you work one-on-one -on -one with a student, you get to know that student's personality and what they're ready for and how much they can absorb. And when you transmit something orally, you can make sure they understand the meaning and the methodology, which helps prevent misinformation. But when stuff is written down in a book, Yes, it's much easier for a lot of people to get access to it, 
But it's also much easier for the reader to misunderstand it or misinterpreting, misinterpret something because there isn't that one-on-one -on -one customized delivery of the material that takes into account the reader's personality. So uh, that's one of the challenges that we have now with the Talmud out there is that you know people can read it and draw what they want from it, and unfortunately people uh, get wrong ideas from that and end up going down the wrong road. At the same time, uh, with regard to Rabbi Judah the Prince's action in writing down the Oral Torah, it had to be done. Otherwise, there was a possibility that the entire system might have been lost given the persecutions that the Jewish people were suffering. So um, his actions were justified, and we are very fortunate to have uh, the Talmud available to us today with its very rich treasury of information and ideas. When we begin to uh, learn the Torah, it's very important to know that the breadth and depth of the information that we're covering is very, very vast. We can't tackle it all right away. Uh, there's the written Torah, which we talked about, the five, uh, sometimes called the five books of Moses, or sometimes also called the Chumash. Then there are the prophets and the writings. Uh, the prophets are called Nevi'im in Hebrew, and the writings are called Chetovim. And if you take the first Hebrew letters of each of those three words, Torah, Nevi'im, and Chetovim, you get an acronym for the whole thing called Tanakh. And the Tanakh is the Hebrew Bible. Uh, roughly about the same content as uh, the Christian Old Testament, uh, but certainly the, uh, uh, the Hebrew uh, on that is the definitive source, not King James or any of those translations, uh, but the uh, Hebrew as interpreted by the rabbinic scholars. Then on top of that, you've got the Talmud, you've got books written by great scholars, uh, Torah scholars, works like Ethics of the Fathers, uh, and those types of things. And you've got commentaries by many of the famous uh, rabbinical scholars. I've listed four uh, famous ones here on the slide. Rashi, Maimonides, who is sometimes called the Rambam, with an M at the end. Nachmanides, who's called the Ramban, with an N as in November at the end. Uh, Sephorno, and, and there are others. Um, so an interesting way to begin, if you're just getting started, is to get a copy of the written Torah uh, and go through it along with one of the classical commentators. For example, maybe Rashi. Uh, Rashi's commentary is available in English uh, through a number of different publishing sources. Uh, and read the text of a particular section, and then read Rashi's commentary on it, and try to understand what's bothering Rashi that's causing him to comment on a particular verse. Uh, he comments on some and he doesn't comment on others, and it's a very interesting process to try to understand, so why did he comment on this particular verse? If at all possible, it's very important and critical to have a bona fide teacher. A good teacher can open up your eyes to new ideas and new vistas and new areas of learning, uh, and by contrast, when you study it all by yourself, it's easy to end up going down an incorrect path, uh, sometimes for some distance, and then it becomes very hard to see the errors in your reasoning and go backwards and correct them. So it's very, very important uh, to have a teacher on this. I would add that the Torah is not uh, just a book of rules and laws. Uh, 
nor is it written as a history book, although it does contain history. It is God's revelation to mankind. You could call it, I guess, a how-to manual about how to live the best life here on earth. Uh, it is possible to show over the course of continued study that the Torah life is the best life possible, uh, right here, right now, today. I mean, and, and living that life today also uh, prepares you best for uh, the world to come. Interestingly, the written Torah uh, hardly even alludes to the world to come. There's virtually nothing in the written Torah about the world to come. And someone pointed out to me that that is because God wants you to be focused on the here and now, not sort of in, in a, a fantasy of pie in the sky. Someday everything will be great when I get you know past this life. But no, we're supposed to deal with what we have to deal with now and uh, work on character development and, and uh, study and learn and gather as much knowledge as we can. The Torah does contain many stories. Uh, and part of the challenge in those stories is for us to abstract the ideas out of those stories. The Torah is not a dry list of, you know, do this, don't do that. But it's a tool for perfection with virtually fathomless depth. Uh, the Torah can be studied at many levels for both beginners and advanced students. And it's a lifetime process. We never get done with it. Uh, but there's always um, more to learn. So before I go on, let me pause and see if, if we've got any questions. Otherwise, I'll keep going. And I'll take silence as affirmation. So I'll keep talking until somebody reaches for the microphone or, uh, or writes a question. Um, let's take a look just to give you an example uh, of the kind of interesting depth that we find in Torah. I'd like to share with you a couple of examples. Uh, this is one from Genesis 18, uh, verses 11 through 14. And let me read it quickly. This is from, uh, as are the other quotes I had, from the Living Torah by Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan, or translation by him. It says, Abraham and Sarah were already old, well on in years, and Sarah no longer had female periods. She laughed to herself, saying, Now that I am worn out, shall I have my heart's desire? My husband is old. God said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, can I really have a child when I'm so old? Is anything too difficult for God? At the designated time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, here's my question. Is there anything unusual or odd about those verses or in that story? Remember, every word in the Torah has a purpose. And it's not worded casually. It's all there for a reason. Is there anything that jumps out at you when you look at those words that doesn't seem quite right? Okay, and Edna was writing, I thought it was odd that God asked Abraham why Sarah laughed. Okay, good. And why would God ask if Sarah laughed? Okay, Kevin Melinda, good. So those are good questions, and we could ask why, why did God speak to Abraham? It might be because um, uh, he was addressing the husband as opposed to 
uh, his wife directly in that. But I was focused a little bit on a slightly different question, and that is look at what Sarah says and then look at what God says to Abraham about what Sarah says. Do you notice anything different about the two occurrences? Sarah laughs to herself and says, now that I'm worn out, shall I have my heart's desire? My husband is old. God says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, can I really have a child when I am so old? That's not what Sarah said. Sarah said, Abraham's old. She didn't say, I'm old. But we notice, interestingly, that God changed the story slightly when he related to Abraham. Would anyone care to take a guess as to why that might have happened? Do you see the difference there? What might be a reason for that? I'd like to suggest, and I, this is not my idea, but one that I read in one of the commentaries, that God greatly desires peace in the home. And if he had said to Abraham, why did Sarah say, I, can I really have a child because you're so old? Abraham might have taken it as an insult. And yes, Jack, thank you, to maintain peace in the home. So God actually modified the story in order to maintain peace between husband and wife and not, or as best we can tell, and not create any um, discord between them. And you'll notice how that's just very subtly buried in there. And I have to say that I'd probably read that story umpteen times in my life and had never noticed that very, you know, uh, small little subtlety. But it's there. And it, I think, gives us some idea of how much God really uh, supports peace in the home and how important uh, a value that is. Let's look at a slightly different one. Uh, in Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 3, it says, in addressing the, the Jewish people, when you come to the land that God your Lord is giving you as a heritage, occupying and settling it, you shall take the first of every fruit of the ground produced by the land that God your Lord is giving you. You must place it in a basket and go to the site that God will choose as the place associated with his name. There you shall go to the priest officiating at the time and say to him, Today I am affirming to God your Lord that I have come to the land that God swore to our fathers to give us. So I'm going to ask you a similar question. Uh, is there anything really odd or unusual that jumps out at you in those verses? And I'm particularly looking at the latter part of all of this. So 
So if we say, and, and we look at this, and it says uh, you must place the uh, first fruit in the basket and go to the site that God will choose as the place associated with his name, okay. There you shall go, so he's giving the priest instruction, you'll go to the priest officiating at the time and say to him, today I'm affirming to God your Lord that I have come to the land uh, that God swore to our fathers to give us. And Edna, yes, your intuition is very good. Uh, there's actually two things here, and that's one of them. You'll notice, as Edna points out, that it says, there you shall go to the priest officiating at the time. Well, what other priest would they go to? Remember, there are no extraneous words in the Torah. So why does it just say you shall go to the priest? Why does it say you should go to the priest officiating at the time? Because there's no other choice. And Rabbi Chait shared uh, that, uh, if I'm recalling it correctly, that that was to tell you that that priest that is in his office at that time is the one that you have to look to as uh, the authority. You can't say, well, yeah, but you weren't as great as Moses, or you weren't as great as the guy who was a generation before you, or whatever. The person that's officiating at the time is the one who is the authority for you. And so you go to that priest. You don't maybe go to him but think, well, the guy I really go by is the one that was in the last generation or two generations back or something like that. So that is a reminder apparently to them that um, they need to be focused on the priest who's officiating at the time. The other piece of that is what the person is asked to say. Today I'm affirming to God your Lord. Now he's addressing the priest. You go to the priest and say to him, Today I'm affirming to God your Lord. Why your Lord? Why not my Lord? Our Lord? You know, why is it yours? And then he goes on to say that I've come to the land God swore to our fathers to give us. Okay, there's the, the inclusive our, but why God your Lord? And what Rabbi Chait wanted to say is that it is a recognition that the priest who has a very high level of knowledge because his level of study and learning has a more, uh, I guess you could say, perfected idea of Hashem, of God, than I would. And so I am acknowledging that, that today I'm referring to God, your Lord, that you have if you will, the inside track on understanding the Creator more so than I because you are the High Priest uh, and uh, you've been involved in you know, that much more Torah learning uh, and understanding than I do. So it's a recognition that that priest's uh, knowledge of the Creator is greater than mine and that that uh, gives them a better understanding. Again, a very small subtlety just stuck in in the change of one word, but a place uh, where we can learn something. Let me share with you one more. Uh, I don't have this one up on the screen, but I will read it to you. I'm sure you're all familiar with the story. Uh, it is when Pharaoh uh, finally meets Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph and his brothers. Excuse me, when Pharaoh meets uh, Jacob. Story of Joseph and his brothers and... Uh, the brothers sell Joseph, and he ends up in Egypt, and then he ends up being second in command, and then the brothers come, and they go through that whole situation, which um, 
we will hopefully be able to talk about in more detail in a later class. But finally, when Joseph identifies himself to his brothers, and they go home and they get Jacob, and they bring him over to Egypt, Jacob uh, is introduced to Pharaoh. And let me just read you this little short section. It says, Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. How old are you, asked Pharaoh of Jacob. My journey through life has lasted 130 years, replied Jacob. The days of my life have been few and hard. I did not live as long as my fathers did during their pilgrimage through life. With that, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and left his presence. Now, I've read that story umpteen times, and sort of like, okay, yeah, they had this little dialogue. And then I just moved on. But one of my teachers, Rabbi Morton Moskowitz, uh, one day analyzed that little section with me and said, first of all, um, you'll notice what Pharaoh's first question is. How old are you? And he said, that's a pretty odd question for somebody to ask the first time they meet somebody, isn't it? I mean, if you met somebody for the first time, would you ask right off the bat, how old are you? I mean, it's a weird question. And then... Jacob goes into this thing about the days of my life have been few and hard. I didn't live as long as my fathers did. It's all this kind of, you know, put down of himself and his life. And you could ask, well, what's going on with that? It's kind of an odd response for Jacob as well. I mean, Jacob was, you know, a great guy. And what Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to suggest about that is that that dialogue gives us a huge insight into the intelligence of Jacob. Because Pharaoh, right off the bat, asks, how old are you? Now, you've probably encountered, sometimes when you go to a room and meet people, there are certain people who have their ego really caught up, uh, and they want to make sure that they are king of the heap in the room or whatever situation you're in. And so right off the bat, by Pharaoh asking Jacob, how old are you? He's wanting to kind of size him up and find out, okay, are you like older than me and you're, you know, going to claim to be wiser or, you know, there's, a, there's this subtle little power thing going on. And that is why Pharaoh's asking that question, because he's wanting to find out, okay, what kind of, you know, challenge might this guy be to me or whatever. And because of the question itself, Jacob recognizes this, and you'll notice right then he starts playing his whole life down. You know, my journeys last 130 years, days of my life have been few and hard, and I didn't live as long as my father. You know, I'm just, it's like the subtle messages, I'm a nothing. You don't have to worry about me. I, you know, it's been a hard life. I didn't do as much as my, my dad's did. I, you know, I'm just, I'm just not anybody you have to worry about. And then he blesses Pharaoh, and then he leaves. So we see an example of the insight and wisdom of Jacob, who just going into this situation immediately sizes up the personality of Pharaoh and operates accordingly in a very wise political way to make sure he's not going to get into any trouble. Okay? Any questions about any of this? I just wanted to give you a couple of examples of this, of how incredibly rich the Torah is and what beautiful lessons and subtleties can be found just by digging into the text and 
and stopping to ask, gee, why did they say that that way, and is there something I can glean from that? In addition to learning about and, and understanding and obeying God's laws, one of the most important aspects of living a Torah life is character development. We all need to be constantly working on improving our characters, and that comes through seeing the ideas that the Torah is teaching and then reviewing them over and over again uh, until they begin to affect us. Now, you may have heard of something called the seven Noahide laws. Uh, the Jewish people have 613 commandments from the Torah, plus additional commandments that were developed by the rabbinic sages. The Gentiles are obligated to comply with the seven Noahide laws. So let's briefly go over those, um, and then we'll discuss some of the ideas uh, surrounding them, and at a later point we'll come back and go into them uh, in more detail. The, the seven Noahide laws include six negative commandments, or prohibitions, and one positive commandment. Uh, the six negative commandments are prohibitions against blasphemy, idolatry, murder, theft, certain sexual relations, and eating the limb of a living animal. And then there is a positive commandment to set up courts of law. Now, it's important to know that these are not really uh, individual laws, but these are categories or themes, if you will, because it would be easy to jump to the conclusion that, well, gee, the Jewish people have 613 commandments, and the Noahides have seven. Sounds like the Noahides got a pretty good deal out of this thing. But that's not really a fair comparison. The 613 are individual commandments. The seven Noahide laws are categories that include many individual commandments. So if we take, for example, the prohibition against theft, that might encompass 18 or more individual commandments if we're talking about them in the same sense as the 613, if we're sort of doing an apples-to-apples apples kind of comparison. Um, there are differing opinions as to how many individual commandments are contained within the seven. Uh, some say that it's, you know, by the time you add them all up, it's in the, the 60s range. Uh, but suffice to say that there's, there's a lot to learn about what is and is not acceptable. And interestingly, if we, uh, I think Aaron Lichtenstein in his book, The Seven Laws of Noah, comes up with something in the high 60s, 67 or 69. Of the 613 commandments, a lot of those don't apply when the temple's not standing. So you're really, as I understand it, down from a practical Jewish standpoint into the 200s range. And so if you do a comparison of those, well, now you're talking about something more on the order of maybe, you know, one for three or one for four, uh, as opposed to seven compared to 613. So it would be a very fair question to ask where these 600, or excuse me, where the seven Noahide commandments come from. Uh, can we find them explicitly written, for example, in the, in the written Torah? And the answer is no. Um, the seven Noahide commandments are discussed in the Talmud, in the Oral Law. Uh, you can find support for them in the written Torah, but they wouldn't just jump off the page at you. Uh, and there's a lot of explanation about those in, uh, in the Talmud, and it goes into uh, also how they're tied back into the support that's found in the written Torah. Interestingly, the seven Noahide laws are not designed to lead a person to spiritual perfection. The 613 commandments that the Jewish people follow are designed for that. But the seven Noahide laws are rather a minimum requirement 
for a society to have the right to exist. Um, if, a, if a society can't really keep bees, then they really don't have the right to continued existence. But to achieve spiritual perfection, we have to go further and engage in learning uh, and character development. So let me go on to a, a question that pops up every once in a while, and that is, well, who's a Noahide? And from my standpoint, the short answer is anybody who's not Jewish. I mean, you've got two kinds of people in the world. You've got uh, Jewish people and Gentiles, and the Gentiles all fall under the uh, purview of the seven Noahide laws. So you could essentially say that anybody who's not Jewish is a Noahide. However, some people think of Noahides as those who have come to understand and accept the Torah and the seven Noahide laws. So when you use that term, you just need to be careful um, to understand exactly what someone means when they use the term uh, Noahides. Now, in the system of Torah, there is an idea called halacha. Uh, and we need to talk a little bit about what that means. There are essentially, in, in Judaism, two systems. Uh, there is philosophy and there is halacha. And halacha is Torah law. Uh, in other words, Torah law defines exactly what is legal to do and not legal to do. Uh, it's, it's essentially like a mathematical system. It's very precise. It's very detailed. Uh, and let me give you an example as to why that is true. Suppose someone climbs across the fence into his neighbor's farm field, goes into the barn, uh, leads a horse out of the barn, gets it across the fence, takes it home with him, all without his neighbor's permission. Now the question is, has he committed theft? And most of us would probably say yes. So now suppose a slightly different set of circumstances. He climbs over the, across the fence to his neighbor's farm field, goes into the barn, leads his horse out of the barn, gets it across the fence, but then he abandons it. Has he committed theft? Suppose he climbs across the fence into his neighbor's farm field, goes into the barn, leads the neighbor's horse out of the barn, but then he abandons it inside the neighbor's field and leaves. Has he committed theft? Suppose he climbs across the fence to his neighbor's farm field, goes into the barn, unties the horse, but leaves it in the barn, and then leaves. Has he committed theft? Suppose he climbs across the fence to his neighbor's field, goes into the barn, but doesn't touch the horse, and then decides to leave. Has he committed theft? And finally, suppose he just sits at home and contemplates stealing his neighbor's horse. Has he committed theft? Now, for this last situation, we'd all probably say no. But somewhere in that spectrum of possibilities, theft was committed. Now, assuming there is a substantial penalty for theft, it makes a big difference when theft is committed and when it isn't. And so we have to be precise. Because people will think, oh, yeah, I know what stealing is. Gee, really? If you take a paperclip home from the office, is that... Is that theft? If a uh, person walks through the grocery store and, and takes a grape, is that theft? Um, here's another possibility. Suppose you go to park your car in a downtown area at a parking meter, and there is time left on the meter from someone who put in money before you. 
are you allowed to use that time or not? Now you say, well, why is that important? Well, if the city expects that every new parker should pay for their own parking, in other words, my implied contract with the city, so to speak, is that I pay for parking regardless of whether someone before me had time left on the meter. If that's the case, and I don't put money in, then I may have committed an act of theft because I'm using that parking space without paying the city for it. Okay, and remember that a prohibition against theft is one of the seven Noahide laws. On the other hand, if the contract with the city for the rental of that space is such that all they care about is that there's money on the meter for the time my car is there, then it would be okay for me to use the previous parker's leftover time. So you see that digging in to find that out, somebody said, I believe it was Rabbi Moskowitz uh, said, could be considered a religious act of determining, well, do I put money in the meter or not? Because I might be committing theft if I don't. So here we have a very common everyday occurrence that could result in an act of theft if I'm not clear what the city's parameters are. This is one reason why the study of halacha, of Torah law, is so important. Almost everybody will say that stealing is wrong, but how many can say in a given situation whether theft is actually occurring? An interesting example that occurred to me once is you walk out of a restaurant, but you are in their parking lot, and you see a quarter on the ground. Can you pick it up and take it? Or suppose you put a dollar's worth of quarters in a vending machine to get a can of soda, and the last quarter jams, and nothing happens. So you slap the machine on the side, and it frees your quarter, plus a bunch of others, and you suddenly find yourself with a dozen quarters in the change slot. Are you allowed to keep them? See, halacha, Torah law, answers these questions in a very precise and mathematical way. It's a whole science. And that's why we constantly rely on the rabbis, because they're the ones who are trained in Talmud and other resources to make these kinds of determinations. And that raises uh, a question of, well, who do I go to? I mean, there's like a lot of rabbis out there. How do I know who to go to to get a question answered? And the answer to that is, it's just like going to a doctor. I'm allowed to go to the Torah scholar who I trust, the one who I think is the best expert, just like I'm allowed to go pick a doctor that I think is, is a good expert. Uh, and note that while I can do that, I can go pick the Torah scholar who I trust. What I can't do is I can't switch around if I don't like uh, happen to like the opinion he gave me on a particular matter. In other words, I've got to be consistent. So if I normally go to one rabbi for a, a halakhic determination of something, and he gives me an opinion that I don't like, while I know another rabbi will give me an opinion that I prefer, I can't jump over to the other rabbi just because I prefer his opinion because you know, it makes my life easier. I need to stay consistently with one particular person uh, and one particular approach. There is also the concept of uh, called staying to the safe side. Uh, for example, if there's a disagreement among the rabbis about a particular thing, and one says it's okay and one says it's not, then you could decide, well, I'm going to not do that just because I want to be on the safe side, since there is some kind of disagreement 
I'll do what's clearly safe, which is not to do uh, the thing that one said was okay and one uh, said was, was not. Uh, there is new halakha that is made uh, as new situations in life arise. When God set up the Talmud and gave the oral law uh, to Moses, he didn't give him a fixed thing. He gave the scholars a system so that they could continue to uh, derive answers uh, to questions as new things arose. And you can imagine in areas where we have new technological conveniences or even genetic engineering and those kinds of things, there are a lot of Torah law implications to those. And so there are rabbis who know and understand those areas and work with them to develop um, uh, law determinations on the basis of the fundamental principles uh, that underlie uh, the Torah system. So that gets us to the, the end of what I wanted to cover this week. And we're just about two minutes away from our ending time. Uh, before we close, did want to check and see if there are any questions on anything we've covered this week or any other questions you might have. And I don't see anyone reaching for the microphone or their keyboard, so I will assume we're good to go. If you do have questions during the week, uh, please feel free to write me at the address on your screen, Doug at thinkingdynamics.com and I'll be happy to try to cover those. Um, and in the meantime, I wish you all a great week, and thank you so much for, uh, for joining me, and we'll hopefully uh, join with you all next week at the same time and uh, continue our study together. And Jack, with that, I'll uh, turn it over to you because I believe you have a class following this one. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>